So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, hey, I'm Nate Larkin here with my good friend David Hampton. How you doing, David? I am hanging in there. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I don't know if you can see behind me, but I'm sitting in an almost empty room. There is a <laughs> yeah. sofa back there that I, was, I, I, I can't <laughs> Yeah, I can't I can't move the sofa by myself. We've got movers coming in just six days. Well, this yeah. is the last time I'll be recording the podcast here uh from that room. In Franklin. Yeah. Oh God, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. So uh, but uh, Allie and I are uh, you know packing the closets and the cabinets. Uh, man, you don't realize until you <laughs> start to empty the closets and the cabinets how much crap you can fit in those things. Uh, yes, and and oh. the, are you asking yourself like like when I moved, I about every other item that got pulled out, I was like, why do I have yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we're doing it all here during the holiday season. We had Thanksgiving. Didn't do it here for the first time in many years. We didn't do Thanksgiving at our house because, well, pretty much all the furniture is gone. <laughs> Went to my daughter's place and had a good time. Yeah. Uh, Thanksgiving for you? Uh, at my mother's house, my mom and dad's. My mom is mm-hmm. 85, and she is still determined uh, that she is going to be, uh, you know, the uh, food channel uh, chef on Thanksgiving. Oh, uh, wow. So she, uh, I, I asked her several times uh, the last couple of weeks before, you know, the holiday that, um, you know, do you need anything? Do you want me to bring anything? No, I think I've got it. No, I'm good. I think we're good. And uh, mom had a, had a real challenging uh, health issue, um, a, a few of them all coinciding about three years ago. And uh, mm-hmm. she ended up in hospice uh, for about wow. a few months. And, and then she got better, you know, and just everything mm. started kind of correcting itself. And um, so she, she tells everybody she graduated from hospice and that, uh, <laughs> and that she's a walking miracle. And so she's just going to do what she wants. And, and yeah. so she said, I'm going to eat what I want. I'm going to take care of myself, you know, but I'm going to, I'm going to do what I want. And one of the things I want is to wear myself out on the holidays. And, um, yeah. so, and of course we're all narcissistic enough to let her. And so, <laughs> so and she told me, she said, I, she said, I'm 85. I don't know how many more Thanksgivings I've got in me. And, and I said, mom, I said, your grandmother started saying that when she was 85 and she lived to be 96. 
So yeah, I'm yeah. guessing, and she cooked down to the bitter end. So I'm guessing we've still got, you know, some good <laughs> holidays with mom, but it was, <laughs> it was a fun day. I had my uh, daughter and my grandsons and uh, uh, some relatives from out of town. I don't see often. Yeah. My sister was there. Um, so it was, you know, it's just a day to enjoy family and celebrate that mom was able to feed us again. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I felt, uh, really blessed to be with family. We had one of those kind of, you know, contemporary, you know, modern Thanksgivings where people that ordinarily wouldn't. So, so it was at my daughter's house and her ex was there oh, with, okay. you know, with his mom. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I I brought another friend who's in the middle of a divorce and, you know, I had him come bring his kids. Yeah. We kind of had this ramshackle kind of, uh, you know, rapid, you know, quickly assembled family from all kinds of disparate parts. Yeah. It was a, we had a wonderful, it wasn't the you know, what I think of is the traditional nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and yet it was a precious time. It, it colored a little bit for me by the knowledge that some of my friends were spending the holiday, you know, at the hospital or mm-hmm. concerned about somebody in mm-hmm. the hospital. We have several friends now wrestling with COVID and, uh, you know, the outlook is poor and yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, that's, that's timely because, um, the day after Thanksgiving, I got some news about, uh, someone in my life that I'm very close to, um, that's going to have some serious health, uh, challenges and risks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there, um, whenever I get news like that, uh, from people that are very close to me, I always, it always reveals my bargains with God. You know, it really does. It just reveals that, um, you know, I, I can be grateful and I can, I can think of all these things in my life that I'm, I'm very grateful for, but there's always still those, there are always those, those little nuggets of, um, uh, expectation, I guess that this won't bump up against me this closely, you know, um, because this has happened or that's happened in your life. Therefore we've had our hard thing. Um, this isn't going to bump up against me this closely again in the form of somebody else that I love. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, dang, if it doesn't happen anyway, you know? Yeah. And, um, and it really does. It, it, um, it forces a lot of, reflection in, in on, on my part when I experience these kind of things. Cause I, I have this belief that, um, you know, uh, either we all get our one hard thing, you know, and that'll mm-hmm. be it. Uh, and then we yeah. live through that and then we're going to go on and that's going to be life and, or that we can tell God, you know, you can do anything but this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah. he doesn't seem to, um, put that on his calendar that way. And, uh, yeah whatever that means. And, uh, and so, uh, anyway, I'm not even attributing adversity to God doing something as much as I just am that, um, I get pissed that God could interfere in my belief system. He could interfere and he doesn't, um, yeah, at yeah, times, yeah. at times. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you read yeah. all the Facebook, uh, you know, posts that, you know, my, my tests came back and I'm, I'm, 
cancer free and God is good. And I always think, yeah. well, is God not good if you weren't? You know, I don't know. That's yeah, a yeah. lot of depth to go into another <laughs> segment on. We ought to do a, a podcast on how we handle our recovery and those kind of things sometime again. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying. You know, got people that we love that are facing some tough times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess this is where the rubber really meets the road when it comes to recovery. Mm-hmm. When uh, when those when the unexpected happens, when the thing that we you know we have this implicit understanding that we're somehow going to be immune from that tragedy, or the people we love are not going to be affected in one way or another, and then that whole expectation gets blown up, and it's painful. Yeah, and yeah. We have all of the we have all of these unwelcome feelings, and I don't know about you, but. Uh, to this day, I will feel the urge to do something to make that feeling go away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's always, yeah. I'm yeah. looking for the escape hatch somewhere, you know, and you have the, for me, I have the fleeting thought was, well, you know, you could drink at it and then you immediately yeah. think, well, yeah, I accept then I won't be present, <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. and as much as it hurts, I, I need to be present and I don't yeah. want to drink at it. I want it to be different, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Always looking for the for the escape hatch lever for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, you found a great guest for us uh, with a with a wonderful story. Very uh, engaging, uh, vulnerable, transparent guy. Uh, listeners, you're going to really enjoy meeting today's guest when we return on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, David, who have you brought to us today? Well, today our guest is Justin Long, and Justin is an author and a business owner. He's a podcast host. He had a best-selling book uh, called The Adventures of the Horse Doctor's Husband, and uh, so I think that's kind of interesting, but uh, Justin is a fellow recovering guy, but he's written a book uh, recently called The Righteous Rage of a Ten-Year-Old Boy. And he talks about, uh, you know, anti-toxic masculinity. He talks about his story, overcoming um, childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences uh, to get to the root of your um, your addiction and um, and your, your issues. And uh, Justin, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I cannot wait uh, to hear this story. The Righteous Rage of a 10-Year-Old Boy. Uh, Man, how key was it, I know, for me in recovery and in treatment to be invited to go back and meet that 10-Year-Old kid and find out kind of where all things started. So uh, take a little time, if you will, Justin, and uh, give us a thumbnail sketch of the story. I think... My my journey has been the same way. Like the farther forward I go in recovery, the farther back in time that I end up going to try to understand how I got to where I am. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, for me, as for, for most people, I think drinking was, a, was not my problem. Drinking was my solution. And so I really had right. to do a lot of hard work to understand what that was a solution to. And for me, I grew up in a, in a household with two very emotionally dysfunctional parents. And... Um, 
you know, both of my parents were, were victims of childhood trauma themselves. And I think it's probably been a, a cycle of destruction in my family for eons. But my yeah. dad, my dad was a rageaholic. He was a workaholic. And the only, only emotions he really knew how to display were, were anger and, and anger and anger. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. So and my mom, uh, my mom was, was not an alcoholic either. She, she went with extreme religiosity, hoping that if, if she prayed hard enough and went to the right church or did all the right things for God, that God would solve her problems. Mm-hmm. And, mm. you know, it was just a very dysfunctional household. Wow. So my dad, you know, tried to, I think, put his workaholism onto me. So he would give me these, these huge long chore lists as a little kid. And then when he would come home from work, we would go and inspect those chores and one of the examples I use in the book is, is firewood. It was my job to, to cut and stack the firewood behind the house because that's how we heated the house. And he would come mm-hmm. home every day when we'd go out to the firewood stack. And if there were any pieces of wood that were sticking out of line or if it wasn't all the way to the top and, and flat across the top, then I'd, I'd get a spanking for all of the, all of the shortcomings in, in, the, in, my, in my chores. Wow. And, mm. you know, that every day, I, I never, ever managed to not get a spanking. So, you know, there was always something wrong with it. And so I learned at a very young age that no matter how hard I work, I'm, I'm going to fall short of the mark. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes to, to get my dad's approval. And my mom, on the other end of that, my mom was not a disciplinarian. So if I acted up before my dad got home from work, which, you know, as a young child, I'm going to, but, you know, she would, she would have me bring in the big trash dumpster from out back and empty the trash out of it. And I would just sit in that trash can and wait for my dad to come home to spank me. And I think the, the, her idea on that was that, you know, I'm not going to be off reading a book or goofing off or something. I'm going to be sitting in there thinking about what I did wrong. But for me, that was, that was my primary caregiver putting me in the trash. And I really formed a lot of negative self-beliefs based on that kind of experience too. Sure. So, so from, from mom and dad, I had no safety. I had no security at home and I had no emotional examples of how to, how to be, how to feel, how to, how to act. Uh-huh. And so uh, I now know, looking back, that, that I was a, a, a victim of, of at least five of the 10 adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. And the CDC data shows that if you've got four or more, you are like 12 times more likely to become an alcoholic or an addict or do some of the other self-destructive behaviors that we do to try to cope with these things. Right. So my, my life was mapped out for me to become an alcoholic long before I ever had my first drink. But I understand that, that now that that's what my problem was, was that the way that I felt about myself and because of the experiences that, that I had as a kid and alcohol made me feel better about myself. It changed that for me. It, it did for me what I could not do for myself. Uh-huh. And it worked for a long time. But, you know, as all external things like that, you know, it has diminishing returns and it eventually stopped working for me. And thank God it did, because that forced me to really get down to what the, the problem was and start addressing that. Mm. Was your first experience with alcohol, Justin, like, you know, your was it just like experiencing your warm hug from God? I mean, that's how I kind of express uh, my first drink experience. But um, did you find that all of a sudden you just weren't... Um, anxious and feeling worthless and not enough and all of that right away? Or, uh, was this a process for you to, to, to experience that with alcohol? No, my first experience was fantastic. My parents belonged to a historical reenactment group 
And, uh, you know, like Civil War reenactors, except they were doing like Mountain Man and Indian rendezvous where we would go out and camp in teepees and wall tents and stuff on the weekend and and do all this stuff. So, but one of the things that came along with that was the Saturday night bonfire where everybody would have a, you know, a jug of some kind of hooch that they've made and brought from home and, and sit in the big circle and play guitars and pass their jugs around. And I was 13 the first time that I started taking a swallow out of the jugs when it went by instead of just handing it to the person next to Mm. me. And I'd kept on taking swigs and taking swigs. And pretty soon I I forgot to keep passing the jugs. I would just, they were stacking up around me. And (laughs) at that point, somebody went and got my dad and, uh, cause he, he wasn't, wasn't out there for that. And so I was 13. I was drunk out of my mind. And I, I knew what, what being drunk was because I'd, I'd read a lot of books. We didn't have a TV in my household, so I was a reader. Uh And uh, that was my escape before I found alcohol was I I read books to get out of there. Uh But but I was drunk and I was very excited about the fact that I was drunk. And when my dad showed up and did his classic move of grabbing me by the ear and dragging me out of the out of the circle. For the very first time in my life, I felt empowered like I wasn't afraid of my dad. I wasn't you know terrified that I'm about to get destroyed for being bad like. I felt brave and strong and and able to just stand up to him and say what I thought. And I had never, ever felt that before. And there was nothing that he could do that that would take that feeling away from me. Yeah. And and while I was drunk in the heat of that moment. So, so I think that cemented it for me. Oh my God, I have found the magic potion to my, all my problems. You know, I'm weak. This makes me strong. Um, you know, this is, this makes me feel good about myself. Even I didn't understand that I felt bad about myself. I felt good and I recognized Mm. that when I was drinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that point on, it it took two more years before I was able to start drinking regularly. But as soon as I had access, that was, that was my plan. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, when you find, how old were you when you left home, Justin? I was 17 when I joined the military and, uh, I did that the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, but that was my, mm-hmm. that was my escape plan was I joined the national guard with the intention of transferring to the active army as soon as I graduated. And that's what I did. I, I got me out of town. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. The challenge with that yep. was that I jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire in terms of places where people are emotionally dysfunctional and abusive and a high alcohol and drug use environment. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it got me away from my dad, but I don't know that it did me any favors. Well, and you mm. had sort mm. of a, it sounds like anyway, a model of masculinity in your dad that was pretty toxic. And then the military, I'm not, I'm not accusing everybody in the military of toxic masculinity, but, but there's definitely, a, <laughs> it's full of it. well, you know, I haven't been in the military, so I can't really, you know, speak with authority on that, but I'll take your word for it. I suspect it is. And, and given that, um, you know, and the title of your book, The Righteous Rage of a 10-Year-Old Boy, when did you realize you were angry? I don't know. I don't know when that happened. I, I knew that I was miserable, but I don't think that I really started getting angry until after I got sober. Because when uh-huh. I got sober, you know, my my sponsor, um, the sponsor that I eventually wound up with, I was about two years sober when I met him. And, and he took me through a workbook called A Gentle Path Through the Twelve Steps by Patrick Carnes. Mm-hmm. And we called yeah, it the, the Brutal Path. And uh, 
but that <laughs> that taught me how to become self-aware and to to dig into the the why behind the what mm-hmm. and that's when i started realizing that not only did did my parents just give me a, a shitty childhood but they actually really screwed me up and that's when i started getting angry i realized the injustice that had been done to me and the impact that that had on every aspect of my life because that 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 negative self-image, the self-loathing, the the need to people please, the the searching constantly for for validation from other people, trying to get that pat on the back, the approval, like all of those things came from my parents, and so that made me a horrible person to to work with. All of my my workplace relationships were challenging because of that. I felt like I had to prove myself every second of every day. Mm-hmm. I had to outshine everybody else. Right. My my personal relationships with women were horrible because of that. You know, it was everything. And the more I realized the how all of this has impacted everything about my life, the, the angrier I got at my parents. So that's that's really when that happened for me. When did you know you were in trouble with uh, respect to alcohol? I think by the time I was 30, I had a, a pretty good realization that that I had a I had a different situation than, than people around me. Okay. I I didn't stay in the army long, but I worked for the army as a civilian for years after I got out. So I stayed in that environment. Everybody that, that I worked with, it was all mechanics, all prior service guys. So it's it's still very much a, a drinking party environment. And you know, everybody's gotta be tougher than everybody else and and it's all the the, the machismo bullshit that, that goes along with that kind of a lifestyle. So because of that, I was surrounded by people who drank like I did. And so it didn't, I didn't stick out of the crowd in that regard until, until years into it. And I really started realizing that, you know, I'm the only one that's drinking in the morning on the weekends. And I'm the only one that has a cooler full of beer in the back of my truck that I'm sneaking out there at break time and lunchtime. You know, I am going a little bit farther and, you know, because I'm, I hated my job, I hated my boss, because my boss had just as many insecurities as I did. So we butted heads horribly in competition with one another because neither one of us, you know, felt good enough. And so I was miserable at home in a relationship that I didn't belong in. I was miserable at work. I was miserable everywhere. And the alcohol that I was using more and more and more to go ahead and feel good about, about myself and about my situation was working less and less and less. And so it was kind of a gradual decline on that where I just, at some point I knew that, that none of my tools were working anymore, but I didn't know what else to do. Right. Right. Uh, I, I love your phrase, righteous rage. Uh, getting in touch with anger was a huge part uh, of recovery for me. Um, it, I, you know, I, I, I grew up in a very religious home where anger was uh, defined as a sin. Mm. And uh, I, I was determined to be saintly. And as far as, it, you know, all my acquaintances knew, I was the guy who never got rattled, never got angry, always had a soft answer, always had a smile. Of course, my wife told me years later that she was always afraid I was going to hit her. Uh, even though mm. I never raised my voice, she could kind of sense that rage kind of pulsing beneath the surface. Um, it was huge for me in recovery to uh, put down on paper, to allow myself to be angry without feeling guilty about being angry. Uh, to understand that 
Anger is not the, as, as often said these days, it's not the opposite of love. The opposite of love is indifference. Anger and love actually are, are pretty closely related. They're deep uh, states of feeling about somebody you care about. Uh, uh, and so, you know, I, admitting that I'm angry and that there is such thing as, a, certainly there is destructive anger. Um, would you do that? Maybe parse that a little bit for us, Justin. What's is all rage righteous? And if not, what is the distinction between a healthy anger, a righteous rage, and an unrighteous one? I am still learning so much about anger and emotions in general. That's one of the big things that I'm working on in therapy right now is is understanding all of the feelings that I have and and how to feel Mm -hmm. them and how to, you know, not try to, to not feel them. And anger mm-hmm. is a tough one. It's, it's such a, a topical emotion for me that, you know, I feel a lot of things. And if they're negative, that'll uh, usually show up on the surface as anger. And I had mm-hmm. to learn how to dig a little deeper than that. And a lot of my uh-huh. anger is based on insecurities. If, if somebody trips one of my insecurities and, and I feel less than or I feel put down or ignored or overlooked or somebody's screwing me over that, uh, you know, that just really comes out as rage with me. And I don't think that that's proper rage because that's me. If I'm not looking at it to, to understand why I'm feeling what I'm feeling, then that's, that's me reacting inappropriately to someone. And, you know, I owe an apology to probably 15 different call center representatives from AT&T as a result of that, because <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have exploded on people and, and, you know, while, yeah, they, I think they were giving me bad customer service or weren't listening to my problem, uh, you know, they in no way should have received the, the brunt of a lifetime of me feeling ridiculed or, or set aside or, or not, not heard. Right. You know, that, that was me having a, an insecurity trip and taking it out on someone. Yeah. And so, no, that is certainly not justifiable or, or righteous rage. Yeah. I think that... Mm. Go ahead. No, I was just I was going to say that uh, we've had guests in the past who have talked about emotions and specific emotions and anger very specifically. And one of the things that we've had people point out uh, to us is that under anger is usually fear. And um, do you feel like, Justin, if you are able to ask yourself when when I am angry, what am I afraid of? Like you mentioned, feeling overlooked or minimized or left out or uh, taken for granted or, you know, am I afraid that I am being characterized or caricatured in a particular way? You know, is that a is that a helpful tool to you to um, ask yourself, you know, where's the fear here? Oh, very definitely. I almost everything for me is is based on fear of some kind, and and it's all you know, like you just said. I, I, people aren't respecting who I am and how smart I am and what I've accomplished and what I'm doing and et cetera, et cetera. How important I am, right? But all of that is because on the inside, I am still sidelining myself, and so I assume that everybody else is sidelining me yeah. too, and so. I have it down to a science these days where when I feel that I can, I can run through the process and realize that this is a, an old behavior. This is an inappropriate response to the situation. And I have to do a manual override because I don't actually feel that way about myself anymore, but it's still an automatic knee jerk reaction so many times. 
And I, for me, um, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book. Sure. Uh, but there's a, a scene in there that just resonates with me in this regard. And it's, it's about, I think it's pronounced Magrathia, something like that. Anyway, it's a dead planet that's been, people have been extinct on that planet for a million years but they still have an automated computer controlled missile defense system. And anytime a spaceship gets too close to this dead planet, the missiles still fire, even though there's nobody there to protect. And I use that as an analogy for what's going on in my head. When I have these knee jerk reactions to things like this is a, a missile defense system that if fired, I'm going to abort the mission because we don't actually need to fire those missiles anymore. We're not protecting Justin because Justin doesn't need to be protected. Justin's okay. Mm-hmm. And just using that as a visual in my head, you know, it took a, a years of practice for me to put that into place. But I can I can see the missiles flying through the air when I realize I'm mad about something now. And I'm like, okay, okay, that's right. This abort mission, this is this isn't real. Mm-hmm. And just creating tools and, and tips and tricks like that to to remind myself to to check in on what I'm feeling. Why am I feeling this? Is this a real feeling or is this an old automated thing that doesn't matter anymore you know that's the kind of stuff that has helped me head this stuff off at the past before it comes to me yelling at somebody on on the other end of the phone for instance or you know taking out uh you know when if my wife corrects me about something rather than turning that into a fight that doesn't even need to exist i can say you know what she's right i could be doing this in a different way that would be more efficient i'm going to do that and it's okay and it doesn't have to turn into anything bad yeah well that sounds like a um kind of a segue into the the conversation about toxic masculinity um it takes a lot of security i think in a in men particularly to be able to receive criticism um or critique um and and so when did you when did you realize that um there were issues with what you'd perceived as traditional masculinity at play in your story I think that it's happened in stages over the years. Mm-hmm. Time was when I met my sponsor when I was two years sober and he, he was gay. And I realized that, that I have a, a problem with that and I don't know why. And so I really wanted to work with him. So I, I managed to push my feelings about that into the corner, but it didn't take long for me to start examining beliefs that I had working with him. Cause that was one of the things that, that we focused on right away is why do I believe the things that I believe? Mm. And so much of that was just beliefs that, that I carried over from my parents and I never even questioned, mm-hmm. them, you know? So, you know, little things is to, you know, how, how I like a steak. My dad always liked his steak burned to a crisp on the rare occasions that we ever had steak when I was a kid. And so I went into adulthood thinking that that's how you cook a steak. That's how you eat a steak. Mm. I was 35 years old before somebody convinced me to eat a medium rare steak. <laughs> and it was amazing. <laughs> It was delicious. I'm like, oh my God, I've been doing this wrong. My belief about how this should be done has been wrong all my life. Yeah, And that was one of the early things that I realized that helped me become willing to overturn or at least examine my beliefs about a lot of things. And my idea of what makes a man a man was one of the big ones of those things. Because all of that I got from my dad too. And my dad was... As far as I knew, all of my childhood, my dad was the strongest, the toughest, the meanest. Like, you never, ever cross my dad for any reason whatsoever. My dad crushed me and just owned every ounce of me, right? And I believed that his ability to dominate me 100% was what made him a man. 
And so when I launched into the world as an adult, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to trying to find somebody that I could dominate and crush so that, you know, maybe that would make me feel good about myself. Then I'll be a man and I can I can respect myself and other people will respect me because I'll be the the biggest, strongest, toughest and meanest, whatever, you know, out there. And I carried that belief for years and it wasn't it wasn't until well into sobriety, years into sobriety that I was able to really start taking that apart and understand that one of the big realizations I had in therapy, and I talk about this in the book, was that when I really look at my dad from my adult perspective, like my dad had a job. He had a, he was broke. I mean, he he always worked. He worked 24 hours a day, but he, he never had any money. He had a house that was falling apart. His cars never ran. He had a, a very questionable relationship with my mom. He had a dysfunctional relationship at home. He was angry all the time. And the only thing that my dad really controlled in the whole world was me. And I never knew that as a kid, but now I can look at it and see that I was the one place where my dad could exert hundred percent control and maybe feel like he had something under control. Mm-hmm. And a, that's really sad, but B, it also totally undermines my belief about what's important. What gives me value as a person? What, what makes a man a man? And so I've had to redefine my whole understanding of all of that stuff. And for me, it, it's, it's come to believing that who I am is good enough, no matter who I am. And that when I don't try to be somebody else, when I don't try to change who I am to make someone else feel a particular way about me. When I just get to know who I am get okay with who I am, embrace it and don't, don't change that for anybody. I think that's, that's my definition of masculinity today, which, you know, it has taken me a long time to, to develop that, that belief. And sometimes I have to remind myself that that's what I believe, especially when I feel intimidated or threatened by, by somebody else that's more manly than me or whatever, you know, it is that, that makes me feel inferior when I'm around somebody. I have to remember that, you know, it does, I don't need to try to change who I am to be like that person so that I can feel good about myself. I already tried that. And the disparity between who I was acting like and who I am on the inside got so big that I almost committed suicide over that. So, you know, that's not the answer for me. The answer for me is to be who I am no matter what, and don't be influenced by other people. Wow. Wow. Um, do you have any siblings, Justin? Yeah, I have a sister that's six years younger than me and a brother that's 11 years younger than me. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, we were spread out. Yeah. 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 I'm just wondering about, uh, you know, family dynamics. Here we are. We're recording this in the uh, holiday season. Uh, We've just passed Thanksgiving. Christmas is coming up. Uh, I'm from a large family myself. do you find it challenging when you get into family situations not to uh, find yourself slipping and reacting into uh, old modes of identity or patterns of behavior? Or how, how does that work? How does how do holidays these days look different? <laughs> well, I don't know if I can if I can really answer that for you because when mm. I left home, I joined the army. I moved from Oklahoma to to Georgia. And I never went uh-huh. back. I, uh, I, gotcha. I, I, I've spent all of my adult life not having a relationship with my family. And which mm. my dad died in 2004 in a car wreck. And I, that mm. was a devastating period for me. I was really conflicted. I was still drinking at that point. 
And, uh, and I really did not handle that well. I did not process it at all. Of course, all I did was drink my way yeah. through it. But, um, over, over the, the years in my sobriety since then, I have tried to, tried to patch things up with my mom a couple of times. And, but you know, my mom's inability to, to look at, at my growth and figure out how she can apply some of the tools that I'm using to her life and trying to overcome her challenges that just it kept a wedge between us. And we never did reconcile. And, and she died from COVID on New Year's Day this of this oh, year. Oh man, I'm so almost sorry. Almost a year ago now. So wow. But it was it was tough. But I handled it very differently than I did my dad's death because I'm sober. I'm in therapy. I've got a lot of tools and resources and people to help me deal with these things in, a, in an emotionally healthy way and to get through it in a way that's not destructive to me or the people around me. And mm. since then, that. You know, that wedge that was between me and the rest of my family, I, I've really learned in the last year was only a wedge between me and my mom, but everybody else was on the other side of that wedge just because of their location. And since then, I've, I've really gotten to know my sister a whole lot more than I ever had. Uh, and some of my aunts and uncles that, that have read the book, you know, because this is sort of an expose on the family, and I was afraid that everybody would have a negative negative reaction to that but it has really brought out everybody willing to be honest and vulnerable about all the the bad things that we don't ever talk about that have happened in our family history and i think mm -hmm. that's been a, a a growth point for everybody it's, it's kind of brought everybody together that we're not we're not pretending anymore because justin put it out <laughs> and got some sunshine yeah. on it so we have to acknowledge this well and uh, Justin, and that's been good. It's been really yeah, good. Yeah, I've heard it said a lot that the addict in the family is really the whistleblower. Um, you know, we, mm. we always uh, hear people saying, you know, this is the, per the identified person or the whatever. Um, and we're going to bring yeah. them in and get them fixed so they can come home and play nicely with the rest of us. And the family does, <laughs> at least in my experience with people, the family rarely has the idea that this is going to be the most disruptive journey for the whole family to go on. Because when this person gets sober, they've got opinions and they are calling people out and on their shit. And it is not, it's yep. anything but a benign little, you know, tulips and daisies path for the family. And I think the families are so uh, often very naive about that. And, um, and so, yeah, I just hear it in your story resonated as well, that you're, you're kind of the whistleblower and sometimes the whistleblowers are ousted, you know? Um, yep. And, and they, they are, you know, they're, they're, uh, the family agrees on a different reality than what you experienced. And, uh, gosh, you know, it is, it is. And then you go to have the audacity to put it in print. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm sure you're yeah. not welcomed with, you know, a parade for that. So, yeah. Well, I wasn't expecting to be, but, but I really have been. And that's, that's the amazing thing in all wow. of this is that, you know, the things I thought, I mean, I, I separated myself from my entire family 25 years ago. So it's not like we even know each other anymore, mm -hmm. but instead of this driving, driving me further away from them, it's brought us together and opened up conversations with people I haven't talked to in 20 mm -hmm. years. Wow. Oh, that's so good to hear. So good to hear. Well, I have a question real quick. Uh, I know we're going to be wrapping up here in just a minute, but um, can you tell us just a little bit about your first uh, best-selling book about the adventures of the horse doctor's husband. Cause 
I just, that title alone, first of all, that's a very secure, uh, to me, um, masculine identity to be able to say the horse doctor's husband for some reason. Uh, you're married to a very accomplished person and and um, and there's no, you know, downplaying uh, her role to make you feel uh, large or something. And, and so I'm just curious about that, that, uh, dynamic. What is, what is that about? I have the most amazing wife in the world and she is 100% perfect person for me. And I met her in 2014. We were both 38 years old at that point. And I was, I was six years sober at that time and nowhere near where I am now on my journey, but I, I was still working a lot on self-awareness and, and changing my beliefs about things. But she challenged me on a lot of those things. Uh, the first of which being, am I okay getting into a serious relationship slash marriage with a woman who is so much farther along in the professional world than I am? She's a doctor. She makes way more money than me. Can I go into this, you know, not being the primary breadwinner? Like that made me challenge my beliefs on on what's important on gender roles and uh as that developed and i became i I took over the business aspect of the business um and so i work from home and then i I take on a lot of household chores because of that i had to i had to overcome the my ideas about you know what's appropriate is it okay for a man to stay home and do laundry and cook and clean while he's doing bookkeeping and and paying bills and fighting with at&t and all that kind of stuff you know so, so she really helped me grow and, and expand my understanding of, of what my, my role is and, and what I think is okay and what's not okay. And, uh, and that has been a, an amazing journey all in itself. But the book, um, I was not a horse person when I met her, so I didn't know, I had no idea what I was getting into, but horses are not like dogs and cats in many regards. So they have a lot of, a lot of health risks. And one of which is, is like colic, which is a general term, but it covers a whole lot of things that can go wrong on, on the inside of a horse. And it happens never during the daytime. It always happens nights and weekends and often on holidays, but it's a life and death situation. So, you know, she's on call and we go out and see emergencies in the middle of the night and go see a horse in the middle of a pasture that's dying or, or, or will die if it doesn't have some sort of medical intervention. Uh-huh. And like, Sometimes there, those are some crazy situations that you find yourself in. The horse could be, you know, wrapped up in a fence because it's throwing itself on the ground and twisting around and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, or you know, just an amazing wide array of of things that I have gone out in the middle of the night and and helped her try to resolve. And uh, and it started out that I was just you know telling the ladies at the bank and some of the people that I see on a regular basis about it. I always have these exciting stories, and they convinced me to write it down, and it became the adventures of the horse doctor's husband. So it's a collection of, of short stories of all kinds of crazy things that we've seen and done. Wow. Well, that's interesting. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I was just very, very curious about that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I have a, an unusual lifestyle for sure. Well, you have a secure one <laughs> for sure. So. <laughs> yep. Yeah. What's, I have on, my, what's my... on the horizon for you, Justin? Uh, looking ahead. Looking ahead. I am, uh, I, I am always, committed to growth. So, so I am trying to, to work out my direction with that with my therapist right now, what we're going to work on in 2022 and, and, and plans for personal growth. But, you know, I'm always trying to expand my skills and, and what I can bring to our veterinary clinic. You know, my wife owns her own clinic. So we, we have mm-hmm. a, a building 
that's getting expanded, we're, we're expanding that. And I'm trying to add a, a television component into that because I'm into audio and video and stuff. And we have a podcast and we do videos oh, for, nice. for patrons of our podcast. And I'd really like to expand that. So I'm trying to challenge myself to to grow my skills in, in areas that I'm, I'm not super comfortable in. And, and I always want to challenge myself to, to get uncomfortable because I think that's where growth happens for me. And so yeah, yeah. just trying to, to become a, a better videographer and, and better at dealing with my feelings on, on the, the therapy side of things and learning how to identify what I'm really feeling faster and, and to make sure that I'm, I'm going in the right direction with the way that I treat my, my staff and, and the people around me when I am feeling these feelings. So what's the name of the podcast? Where can our listeners find you? Uh, that podcast is called Straight from the Horse Doctor's Mouth. And it is available everywhere. Okay. All right. Well, what an enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for setting uh, a part, uh, setting aside a part of your busy day for us. Uh, it's been wonderful talking with yeah, you, Justin. It absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And and thank you for. I guess I, I should mention I should mention that that my website for for my books and all that stuff is jboydlong.com. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Oh, yeah, your oh, publisher would love you stuff. for doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, getting yeah. old, man. Give us, it's getting give, old. Give us that name again. It's jboydlong.com. And I had to separate right. myself from the actor Justin Long. He's got all the Google stuff sewn up on that. Oh, okay. So. I am. Okay, yeah. right. I had to go with the middle name. Well, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, I know folks will want to get in touch with you. All right. Yeah. Every, well, I've got a blog on there. There's all kinds of personal development stuff on my challenges that I've been going through and, 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 uh, other podcasts that I've been on and all kinds of good stuff. So it's a good website. Good awesome. deal. Well, thanks so much, Justin listeners. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the positive sobriety podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Our guest uh, was really, uh, for me, Nate, a uh, a breath of fresh air with respect to um, his his perspective, particularly on masculinity. I have to tell mm-hmm. you, I'm a guy that can't fix anything. <laughs> <laughs> a friend who refers to my tool, what I call my toolbox, as my Tonka toy kit. <laughs> <laughs> they sell at Home Depot where you can pop all the, the different tools into its proper, you know, little slot in the case. And then you fold the case up and it and it closes up. Yeah. And I have a little yeah. bit of just enough stuff to get me in trouble. And yeah, 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 and I've yeah. always I always feel like, you know, I, I sort of take a hit in the man category because I don't have all that. um uh, jargon, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, in sure. my world, and um, but particularly too, um, I uh, like many many of us. I have struggled with anger, you know, throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either like you mm-hmm. had mentioned, not being angry or pretending I'm not angry, or but wanting to believe I'm not angry, or like angry is sinful, or you know, whatever. And it, like like Justin mentioned, I it wasn't until I got sober that I realized I am pissed off. 
I'm not not just a little pissed off. (laughs) I'm a lot pissed off. And uh, so I appreciated his, uh, his book, his, um, his perspective just on, you know, to write a book from the rage of a 10 year old boy. I mean, that's, that's a vulnerable place to be. Yeah. 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 And I also, you know, another thing I really appreciated about Justin is he, uh, it, he is not pretending to be done. Yeah. He's introducing himself as very much in process, which mm-hmm. is realistic. Uh, I know that's where I am. Yeah. Uh, and some, and sometimes, you know, the audience wants you to be able to be done. Oh yeah. Yeah. We all, right? you know, want to, we, we want to believe that our recovery is going to be like a, a, you know, an hour episode of some, our favorite binge show or something. You know? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's going to get wrapped up somewhere. Yeah. Well, that was a good, refreshing conversation. Yeah. Well, uh, we've, we're about to the end of the hour, but before we wrap, uh, I seem to recall that we do have a sponsor. We do. We have a sponsor. And um, this sponsor is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com. And this is an online therapy service. It is licensed therapists that are available for you to engage with, to uh, log on and subscribe to. You can get traditional therapy in the comfort and privacy of your own home, your own car, wherever you want to talk to people. BetterHelp.com is there for you to do that. Um, They are a place where you will be able to tackle anything from your depression to feeling stuck to, uh, you know, anything you would go to uh, any other counseling experience to, to explore in your, about your issues in your life. Um, and if you sign on with betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, you'll, uh, receive a discount on your initial, um, intake. And you will also let us know that uh, the resources that we're providing here are helpful to you. So um, contact betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and um, get moving toward the things that are uh, holding you back. Awesome. And uh, as always, we love to hear from our listeners, any feedback, any pushback, any suggestions for guests or future episodes, Send those to us at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, Hair and Makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, Wardrobe (laughs) by Kathy Gifford. 